This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. Good afternoon, and thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate it. Um, the professor that uh, Dr. Sheehan described had a, had a profound impact on us, and I've let that color some of the work I've done in terrorism. And my objective today is to talk with you about state sponsors of terrorism, but also to say a word about this, uh, this great teacher and kind of the way he thought about international affairs. On any given day, he had a tendency to turn up in class with a sheaf of newspaper clippings. He was a great admirer of what you could learn from the press. And uh, so he would present us with something like the following. From Strategic Survey 1971, tiny little Xerox I have in my files. 15 March, Mexican government announces discovery of a plot for its overthrow by guerrillas of the MAR movement recruited in Moscow and trained in North Korea. Five Soviet diplomats expelled. Most interesting thing to read about Mexico. And then being from California, he might add something from the local paper. So the Los Angeles Times added to what we know by saying that these guerrillas, most of them, were Mexican students from the universities and their training had included work in East Germany and Moscow at Patrice Lumumba University before they went on to North Korea and then to come back to Mexico to stir up revolution. A most interesting series of events in these young people's lives. So he would engage us in that way with an intriguing clipping from the daily press and then make us think about it. What are those anomalies there? What, what, do, we, what do we need to understand? How, who bought all those airplane tickets? Who put the official stamps on all those people's passports as they went through all those countries, or were they stamped at all? And what did it mean for Mexico, really, so close to us there in Southern California? Why would there be a revolution in Mexico? Who was interested in making one? If it's a Soviet bloc, what did it indicate about them and about Cuba and a lot of other things? Uh, the study of terrorism in those days was somewhat uh, nascent. There weren't a lot of textbooks. There weren't a lot of identified experts and all that. But Dr. Rood, for all his work in conventional power and nuclear weapons and geopolitics, was really interested and he taught us a lot. One of the things he taught us was that by taking a small sliver of information like that, you really could open a whole world of international relations if you were willing to follow where it led. He loved anomalies and he loved teaching us about what those little things like detectives look at can do. He had a wonderful sense for the psychology of power. So while usually his lectures might be about the steps Germany takes in the late 30s, to move against all of its enemies in Europe, uh, for example, uh, he could explain the power of terrorism too, very well, much more so than a lot of experts even could now. Rude thought that power includes the capacity to inflict physical and psychological pain and then manipulate human relations accordingly. And he felt that in the case of terrorism, very often it was states who used this stuff to manipulate foreign states to change the environment and to make them fear death and destruction and do something different accordingly. Rude was a skeptic. He was very skeptical. 
but he was the kind of skeptic that would bring a speech by Adolf Hitler to help understand something about the origins of war. Or he would bring a clipping uh, from a terrorist, uh, he showed me lots, uh, that helps us understand terrorism. So somehow he was in that middle grounds uh, between making, taking advantage of that which terrorists said and published, their manifestos, their strategic documents, and also distrusting them. And that's a difficult thing. Uh, we call it open source intelligence now. Uh, actually, Dr. Rood was way ahead of things. He'd be very amused to read now in the Al-Qaeda training manual, which I've used to teach Marines with. He'd be very interested to see that the Bin Laden people say that 80% of what you need to know about the enemy, us, is available in open sources. He was a good practitioner of that. Above all, he took state seriously. We should remember this, you know. Ours is an era fascinated by sub-state actors and globalization and the breakdown of borders and everything. He always brought us back to states. So if, if, if one of you uh, in uniform had shown him your copy of Martin Van Crevel's The Transformation of War, which is an important and interesting book, saying how the changing, the changing world scene means that states have dramatically less power and guerrilla groups and individual actors and what we now call super empowered individuals in poli-sci jargon. I hope we don't have too much of that at Villanova. That all of these things are a kind of counterbalance to the state. Rude would have wanted us to look hard at the way states function and the powers that they have and in fact the way in which a sub-state group might aim to become a state actor. Some do. Some do, like the Palestine Authority was born out of a guerrilla movement, for example. So in this lecture today with you, and then I look forward to your questions, I'm going to try to do six things. I'll do them, I'll do them fairly, fairly shortly, but the lecture may take an hour. I hope, I hope the, the room isn't too close for you. I want to look back at the Soviet bloc, which really teaches a lot about understanding state terrorism. I want to look at two so-called free agents, two states that Dr. Rood studied, which are very valuable for thinking about how states can conduct terrorism and why they might. The third part is what I call drug states, three illustrations of states which actually are so deep into the narcotics business that they make, a, make, a sound, uh, make us think about groups like FARC instead of sovereign states. Number four, the four states on the State Department list of state sponsors. Number five, a few words about Pakistan, and then six, maybe a few generalizations, and then on to your question. So back to the Soviet bloc, which was profoundly influential uh, on, all, on, on all the ways that uh, guys like me grew up thinking about international relations. Uh, we've had to sort of muscle our way out of Cold War thinking in lots of ways, but we can't forget it entirely. Sometimes I think we have. Uh, for example, there's a few new books about guerrilla warfare, especially Max Boot's book, Invisible Armies. Fantastic book, right? Says almost nothing about Libyan support for terrorism, which I intend to talk about. So we don't want to forget uh, everything that happened. It's instructive. We need to learn from it. Soviet bloc said openly that they were promoters of international revolution. They were proud of it. They thought it was going to make for a better world. They thought revolutionary change was splendid. They preferred to, to finance and, and supply national liberation movements, as they called them. So in the Warsaw Pact countries, not just for Moscow, 
there was an active program of promoting groups like some of the ones I study as terrorist or guerrilla groups. Their advocacy was, was, was focused in, in ideological ways as well as practical ways. When we think about strategy, they had the Communist Party of the Soviet Union and its operatives. They had international sections and even publishers. They produced fantastic amounts of written propaganda, for example. And they had an elaborate military entity and elaborate structures of covert agencies and intelligence organizations, which they used to promote this as well as, so there's the overt and the covert. Well, we know from meetings and memoirs of meetings and such that the Warsaw Pact decided in, in Varna, for example, in 67, in Prague in August of 73, they met and they discussed strategy and they talked about the need to advance liberation movements. And so the evidence we see of these things later uh, is, uh, is uh, clear and it fits within a kind of political framework, an ideological framework. There's quite a lot of evidence about these. Uh, the PLO is a great case. One day, Dr. Rood showed me a newspaper. As I said, he loved to do that. But this was an unusual paper. This was a copy of a paper called FATA, F-A-T-A-H, same name as the main guerrilla army of the Palestine Liberation Organization. Now, the first thing about it is, of course, I don't study Arabic, I'm sorry to say. I'm ignorant of most of things in foreign languages. But this is in English. Now that's interesting. So FATA not only wanted its particular viewpoint promoted, it wanted it promoted in English to guys like me. So Rude had uh, subscribed to this as well as all the other things he subscribed to. And he shows me a picture taken in Bratislava, Czechoslovakia at the end of the 1950s. So I'm standing there in 1980 or something looking at a 70s newspaper with a picture from the late 50s. In the picture, smiling visage of a, of a young man named Yasser Arafat, identified as Abu Amar at the time. With him was Abu Ayyad, one of the most famous terrorists later on in that movement, and a couple of the other guys. Caption says that after a meeting of the Palestine General Union of Students, they all dispersed to other places in the name, you know, East Berlin, Warsaw, and all the other parts of the Soviet bloc. Utterly fascinating for a very young crew of guys to have been recruited a little bit like maybe some of the Mexicans were I mentioned and to been trained and to off been offered opportunities also to be diplomats, to learn about intelligence matters, to travel when perhaps they might not have been able to do so themselves. This kind of evidence, that was a kind of admission they'd been in the bloc begins to pile up at the end of the 70s. So Rude one day showed me a Danish newspaper which had a full interview of a guy from PLO who talked about his Soviet bloc training, which was interesting. None of my books in school talked about that, but there it was in the newspapers. Robert Moss, November 1980, wrote a big piece in the New York Times about all this network of Soviet bloc support. Um, I have a copy of a Stasi document, 1979, which when translated shows all manner of guys you'd recognize like Carlos the Jackal in Hungary, in Poland, in the, Yugo, in, uh, in the Soviet Union and so forth. So isn't that interesting that all of that was available to us as citizens before the big debate of the early Reagan administration about whether the Soviets promoted terrorism? That was a huge debate. CIA initially said, no, they don't. 
but you could see all this kind of thing. And this was the kind of thing Dr. Rood used to ask us to study as well as be aware of what they were saying over at CIA. In one of my jobs later on, I actually met a guy from the Communist Party of the Soviet Union uh, who was a bag man. He used to take bags of money out of the Kremlin and go overseas and give them to Palestinians who were involved in these liberation struggles. So it was, a, it was an interesting experience for me. His name was Eugeny Novikov, and he taught for the U.S. government for a while. Um, part two of this I call free agents. And I'm thinking here about a couple of states that really intrigued Harold W. Rood. Because on the one hand, they weren't really part of the Soviet bloc, but on the other hand, they did a lot of things that the Soviet bloc approved of. So they caught his attention. They made him concerned. Yugoslavia and Libya. Yugoslavia is interesting because Belgrade and the rest of the country, of course, had just one national party in those days. It was called the League of Communists of Yugoslavia. They weren't embarrassed by that. That's what they stood for. They were very proud of their independence from Moscow, of course, and we all know that. That's, that's in our books. Uh, he taught, however, Rude did, that there were many crippling military arrangements and security arrangements made with the Yugoslav government, which made them just a little bit less independent than everybody thought. Second thing about Yugoslavia was an overt commitment. They were overtly committed to the causes of international revolution. They were anti-NATO, they were anti-US, they were revisionist powers, and they were willing to pay for it and act like it. And he documents a lot of this in his book, Kingdoms of the Blind. So once you're alerted to that, you start watching, and you notice that in the Munich case, 1972, the bad guys came from the Middle East, but they went through Yugoslavia, which again is interesting. That's a state with serious security. How did that happen? Did they favor that passage? Well, I was working a congressional staff much later, 1985, and there was the famous Achille Loro case. And once again, after those guys were released, uh, or in one case, they went directly from the scene later on. Uh, some were released out of, out of Italy. But some of the perpetrators in fleeing that uh, experience went through Yugoslavia again. And I began finding, in fact, a lot of that kind of evidence, that Yugoslavia was a transit point. The PLO had uh, basically an open embassy there and so forth. Well, it was a reasonable thing for them. It supported their ideals. It allowed them to exercise power as a state. It showed their kind of uh, independence and character. And they never really apologized for advancing what they considered to be these national liberation fights. Libya is a little different. So just south, straight south, a country you know better, I suppose, than Yugoslavia, a country defined for many years uh, by the personality and the quirks and the power of Muammar Gaddafi an army officer who comes to power in a, a coup, kicks the British out. He flagrantly approved of international revolution. He was a very serious man when it came to that score. He did publish an ideological treatise. It was called The Green Books, the three volumes. Uh, people don't read them. Uh, and so he talked about politics, and he talked about a third way between capitalism and socialism. What he mostly was known for was his promotion of various violent sub-state groups. A lot of his partnerships were uh, lately, uh, came to very little, but he cultivated them. He spent years doing so. CIA 
has said that they found some 25 terrorist acts that Libya was responsible for just in one year, 1984. They worked with the Basque ETA, with Red Brigades in Italy, uh, with the IRA, very famous uh, liaison there. They worked with all kinds of people. They even worked with certain right-wing Italians, uh, and they were aiding both sides in the underground in Italy. Very strange. Uh, Czech Plastique, Semtex it's called, was delivered uh, to Libya and then of course found its way later to Ireland. In Africa they were revolutionaries in most cases. They had sort of uh, state guards which helped certain governments, but most governments they opposed and wanted to overturn. So for example they were involved at Gafsa, Tunisia in 1980 in a complicated deal involving Tunisian dissidents, got out of Palestinian camps, given fake passports through Libyan agencies in Beirut and so forth. They were involved in Chad. They worked the PLO account with a great deal of special interest. So those Munich guys, for example, at the games in 72, are regarded to have been given millions of dollars by Gaddafi for what happened in Munich. Other aid recipients in the Palestinian movement included George Habash, for example, who had a lot of links uh, to that state, and Abu Nadal. Um, it's an old name, isn't it? Abu Nadal was killed by the Iraqis, it appears, right before the coalition went into Iraq in 03. But at the time, he was an immensely important man. His ANO, or Black June, or the Abu Nadal Revolutionary Organization, was probably responsible for almost more than any other group extant of deaths during the 1980s. Uh, he was a mass murderer at the top of his game, and he was getting Libyan help. So were Asians. There were some Asian groups. Uh, there's a fantastically interesting case with Abu Sayyaf, who still makes the papers, in which Libya proffered some millions of dollars to resolve a hostage crisis. So they didn't exactly get busted and publicly for aiding Abu Sayyaf, but what they did was intervene with a large amount of cash after Abu Sayyaf took hostages. Then they got to play the statesman. They were able uh, to solve the crisis. And of course, Abu Sayyaf was able to buy a lot more weapons and take a lot more hostages, which is exactly what they did. They were involved in Central America. Oddly enough, the State Department in the early 80s published a report on Libyan activities in Central America because there were so many, not just the liaison with Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas. And they were involved right here because like a, quite a few states, Iran, Iraq, uh, uh, Libya, there was a hatred of overt criticism. So an emigre who left the country was very likely to be pursued in some places in Europe and Libyan pursuit of their emigres came right up to our doors here because in Denver and in Ogden and in Philadelphia in the early 80s there were shootings and plots against Libyan emigres living right here in the United States. So these all go behind uh, the, that moment in 1986 not just a discotheque bombing when uh, Mr. Reagan and uh, the British, uh, with, with a little British help, uh, bomb uh, Tripoli and some other targets there. Uh, so those are two states, very different states. One orthodox communist, very much proud of its own independence, helping, say, the PLO for its own reasons, and another close by across the Med, Libya, a state now much changed, which for several decades was doing similar things for its own reasons.
part three. Um, part three is about regimes that get so far into the narcotics business that it very much colors what they are. The phrase narco-terrorism is one you know. That's uh, formed in, in sort of about oh, 1990. There's a very good book about it from Basic Books in 1990 uh, called Narco-Terrorism. And the thing is, it isn't just individuals or cells or groups. For example, the Munich train, I'm sorry, the Madrid train bombing of 04 was very much empowered by a lot of money from the hashish trade out of North Africa, for example. So we know groups do that. This is about states that do it. Back to the block, in 67 it appears, Moscow and Sofia got together and decided they were going to go into the black market goods business in a serious way. This is helpful to them to move people. It's helpful to raise money, lots of other things. And so they found something called Kintex. And Kintex is an import-export firm, which is a very valuable thing to run if you're in the state terrorism business. They used uh, TIR truck lines, which could cross frequently without inspections through European borders. They used the Bulgarian state airlines called Balkan Airlines. They used ports at Varna and Burgas. You remember Burgas. That's where Hezbollah recently blew away a bus full of Israeli tourists. So the Bulgarians were hard at work creating Kintex and other means of moving people, narcotics, weapons in and about Europe. Largely, they moved dope out of the Middle East and they brought weapons back from producers like Belgium, Switzerland, the UK, and sold those or moved those down to allies in the Middle East. They were especially tough on Turkey, I'm sorry to say, our NATO partner. Well, Newsday, and a Long Island uh, newspaper, used to do a lot of investigative work. They covered this years back, and we learned a lot more when the Pope was shot in Rome, because the guy who did it turned out to have in his pocket the numbers to a couple of diplomats in the, Bul the Bulgarian embassy who'd been managing him. Uh, they, of course, quickly flitted out of the country. The Italians ejected large groups of foreigners for supporting terrorism after that, many of whom were Bulgarians. The last word on the subject of, and its seriousness comes from the DEA. Drug Enforcement Agency said this in 84, in virtually every report available to DEA, since 1970, containing information on trafficking in and through Bulgaria. The state trading organization Kintex is mentioned as a facilitator of transactions. In turn, sources consistently state top-ranking members of the Bulgarian intelligence service and or former heads of Bulgarian ministries comprise the directorate of Kintex. Thus says DEA. Well, there's a lot of other cases that are equally interesting. One is very much alive now, North Korea, a fascinating study. We tend to see it dismissed as the hermit kingdom or some other language that suggests it's very enclosed and private. But they have a lot of interna interesting international commerce, it turns out. For quite a few years, I clipped things out of the paper that showed the most strange things taken one by one. Uh, a diplomat or an attache or a military officer from the state uh, being arrested somewhere out there in the world for dealing dope or selling 
expensive wristwatches or other things that seemed completely odd. And you wondered if it was some sort of private enterprise or a state purpose. I finally asked a Marine colonel about this at the end of the 1980s and he said, oh yeah, he said, I was an attache in a Scandinavian country and one of my first days there, I remember, they busted a, a North Korean diplomat for selling dope, which was kind of strange. The Washington Post eventually covered this, but it was in a way that uh, Dr. Rood would not have liked because they played up the whole notion of the oddity of all this. And the kind of, it had a sort of whimsical character as suggest that this was some kind of, you know, comedy parade. But in fact, it's a system. It's a system, so it's not a, it's not a clown parade, no matter how many times Dennis Rodman goes to Pyongyang, it's not just a clown parade. There's a system, it's a system for making money. It's a state which is desperate for hard currency, and this is one of the ways they've found that they can get it. Uh, they have a building in downtown Pyongyang. It has offices of something they call Bureau 39. One of my friends has written a lot about this. Bureau 39 moves illicit material. It moves drugs, it moves contraband, it moves it throughout the world. It's directly controlled by the party. That bureau refers to a bureau of the Communist Party of North Korea. And so that has got them involved in a lot of strange things. So if you're a student of the Middle East and you found out after the 06 war between Hezbollah and Israel that the North Koreans had done some of the bunk bunkers underground which were found for Hezbollah, uh, that's a kind of oddity which falls within the perspective of a larger plan here. If you're interested in counterfeit and why we changed all those dollar bills in recent years and have a new design on our currency, a lot of it has to do with something called the super note, which is the $100 bill, which is the one most smuggled outside in the world. And the North Koreans, as well as other countries, have made those, and they make such good copies that they're almost undetectable. And so it caused us to completely change the way we made our $100 bill. Uh, there have been links uh, from these uh, Korean fellows and their regime to the Japanese Red Army and to other certain terrorists. Uh, and they've actually used one of the JRA people to move some of that stolen or created, I should say, the counterfeit currency. So there's an interesting link then between different kinds of black market activities and, and terrorism. Uh, the narcotics problem is truly a, a problem, uh, not just ours. Japanese uh, police are appalled by the methamphetamine that's reaching their people and a lot of it comes from overseas and a lot of that comes from North Korea. The Australians caught a boat a few years down south and they were uh, the boat was moving heroin, processed heroin. Three of the crew were captured later individually. They all had some of these packets of a certain kind of created heroin. So they're creating and selling very important stuff and it's linked to their long-term practice of terrorism. Here's a, here's a query for you though. Are they still on our State Department's terrorism list? They're really not. Actually the last administration, Mr. Bush, took them off in an elaborate bargaining process over nuclear stuff. Not necessarily a bad idea, but it didn't work out very well uh, for the American side. And now they're not on the State Department list of terrorists. Last narco state, Taliban. Interesting. We're looking now at Taliban the second time around, aren't we? Uh, they ran the country by and large at the end of the 90s. 
They're thrown out by the American invasion and the work with the national, with the, uh, national Alliance of Afghans, like the Northern Alliance. But they have all along, with some blips on this record, they have all along made and profited from narcotics. In older days, for example, an Afghan charge in Paris said, for example, Taliban's probably making about $80 million a year on opium. Time goes by, 2009, the Vienna office of the United Nations, which specializes in drugs and crime. Vienna says, no, they're in pretty deep, and they're making at least $100 million a year in opium. The UN is not one to really report things like this very often, but they did. But now we have a very fine journalist, Gretchen Peters is her name, Cracker Jack American, uh, not criticized, as far as I can tell, by people who know the business. Peter says, you guys are way wrong. By now, Taliban is making more like half a billion dollars a year in narcotics profits, 500 million a year or so. Now, how do they justify that? That's interesting. If you're a, they were a state, then they've been whipped, now they're sort of a rising insurgency, aspiring to be a state again, right? If you want that kind of legitimacy and you want to be a governor, how do you deal dope on that kind of scale? Part of the answer might be personal connections. So, for example, uh, Mullah Omar, who founded Taliban, knew a guy named Bashar Norzai. He'd worked with his father, who was a dope, dope mover. And Bashar is actually now in U.S. federal prison because of his importing Afghan heroin into the United States. It was a personal connection there. Part of it has to do with thinking about laws and legalism. Taliban has a little bit of fancy footwork on what's allowed. See, they, they discourage any good Muslim from using any sort of drugs, uh, but they're not so worried about the sale or production. So there's a directive that was found in one section ruled by Taliban years back. Directive says the consumption of opiates is forbidden, as is the manufacture of heroin, but the production and trading in opium is not forbidden which introduces us to kind of a third line of thought. You can think about this as a form of warfare. If it's religious warfare and you're willing to do radical things all the time, like burn down schools, which Taliban does, you're also willing to sell dope abroad to the infidels who are dumb enough to use it, aren't you? And if you can make money doing that, why not? So seems to go the theory. Uh, there are one or two who've actually spoken in such crude terms in that way. Most of them, of course, do not. But we still have a striking thing, which is that Taliban is very clearly involved. Depending on time and place, the roles have included organizing farmers for poppy production, taxing poppy growers, taxing opium markets, taxing heroin labs, charging money to protect opium shipments before leaving the farm areas. Some of the Taliban commanders have even run their own laboratories. It's important, isn't it? If we think about what makes an insurgency thrive or fail, if we think about negotiating with these folks, if we think about the future of Afghanistan after the coalition leaves, we have to recognize the remarkable durability of a kind of organization that can make $500 million a year in cash apart from, apart from their other kinds of strengths. Section four. Now, if North Korea is not on the list of bad boys identified by Foggy Bottom, uh, who is exactly? 
We do keep a State Department list. It's very much vetted, discussed. It affects our commerce, our diplomacy. Years ago, there were a lot more states on it. Libya, Yemen, some of these places, Iraq, have come off for reasons that you'd, you'd understand. There's still four. Cuba, Sudan, Iran, Syria. Cuba is very interesting because the evidence used to be massive and now there's almost no evidence of anything new that's being done. So if you go back a few years, 1982 for example, you can find a Senate Judiciary Committee report of extensive length that shows all kinds of Cuban activities, Cuban hosting, North Americans, some of our guys like the Venceremos Brigades, the Weather Underground. You can see them systematically cultivating our Puerto Rican militants, for example. Uh, you can see a lot of engagement in Central American countries we're close to, like Costa Rica, El Salvador. You can see something called the Isle of Pines complex, uh, which I've certainly never been there. It was a place uh, once known for vacationers, which in times of the Castro brothers uh, became, for a while, it's not anymore, a massive training area for Africans for Latins, uh, not so much for Americans, but these revolutionaries came there and they got political training, they got sometimes arms training, sometimes physical education training. This is one of the grounds for Cuban foreign policy. So remember, this is a state, however small, which once put literally several tens of thousands of combat troops into places like Angola, Mozambique, Ethiopia. We tend to forget that now. Well, after the Soviet bloc collapses, a sort of Cuban enterprise of this sort declines too. They're still listed, but what I want to say is they could go off tomorrow. We could open the newspapers and find they've been delisted. I can see the administration thinking that there's a sort of opportunity, given maybe something that'll happen, uh, a, a way to look ahead to a new Cuba, uh, an inducement of various kinds. I can see uh, a government decision to pull them off the list. And I have a few interesting conservative friends who used to be old cold warriors, but now they want to see Cuba taken off the state sponsors list. There are still some fugitives there. A couple of them, uh, one guy had his picture in the paper, to, one of the New York papers today, William Morales, an old bomb maker. Uh, there's a bunch of Americans down there. There's a bunch of ETA Basques still there, uh, but there are not, there's not seemingly an active Cuban process of supporting revolution abroad. Country two, Sudan. Interesting place. Uh, just in the last few years, right, the southern Sudan has become the newest country. We have a new country in the world. Uh, in the old days, the key was to the Sudanese situation, a fellow named Hassan al-Tarabi. He was one of the first and most uh, virulent of the Sunni extremists, and he was a very smart guy. I once heard a long interview with him on the radio. He's an extremely articulate man uh, in English, mind you. He's British educated, and he had a lot of things to say. He became kind of the power behind the throne in the Sudan. So as Khartoum affairs went, Hassan al-Tarabi was an important guy. Uh, by 93, the State Department here is listing that country for terrorism. They're concerned, for example, that the first attack on the World Trade Center, 93, had a Sudanese uh, component. If you're Ethiopian, you might know that, uh, uh, you know, in Addis Ababa, they tried to kill <laughs> President Hosni Mubarak of Egypt when he visited. That happened in 95. 
I wrote about this at the time in the Christian Science Monitor, but I had no idea Bin Laden was also in the Sudan. He was. He was there from 91 to 96. He was pressured out finally by international sanctions. Other friends of Sudan included Carlos the Jackal, Hamas, and so forth. One of the things that's interesting about him is they haven't shown a particular sectarian concern about exactly what school of Islam you're in. They've shown that they'll work with uh, almost anybody uh, who's a zealot uh, for Islam, and they've worked with Shia as well as Sunnis. Iran's done the same thing, which brings us to Iran. Almost too much to say about them. I'm going to have to be real short on Iran. Uh, suffice it to say, they've, uh, in U.S. foreign policy terms, have kind of gone from, as one new book says, from policeman to pariah. It used to be a beloved partner, of course, under the Shah, as a revolutionary state has been troublesome. And they've now been closely involved with a lot of things we don't like. Okay, states differ. But specifically, clandestine violence and support for groups like uh, Hezbollah, and Hamas and many others. Uh, it's important uh, that Iran uh, has actually remained bold after all this time as a revolutionary state. They still have plenty of willing volunteers. Uh, only last year, I think it was, there had been a plot, wasn't there, to uh, kill the Saudi ambassador in Washington that was run by the Quds Force. If you want to go way back uh, to, for example, 1980, just a year after they come into power. It's interesting to think of a man named David Belfield from Maryland area. He killed a Iranian emigre up in, uh, in Maryland and fled abroad. He's now living openly in Tehran and he's even made a movie. So he's a quite popular figure back in Tehran. There are a number of other cases in which uh, senior American academics who are experts in Arab affairs were tied to Iranian money. The most embarrassing case was one man who, having denied for years that he was pro-terrorist, disappeared over, overseas, turned up in Damascus as the head, the head of one of the Palestinian terror groups there. So Iran has a lot uh, that keeps us busy in terms of watching. Syria is the last case. You know uh, much, as much about Syria today as, as I do. Uh, I'll just step back one way and say uh, there's a major group that were extremely important and still remain so to keep an eye on, and that's the Kurdistan Workers' Party. Founded in the 1970s, uh, not surprisingly, wants a Kurdish nation. There are a couple tens of millions of Kurds. You wouldn't be surprised that such a movement would arise. They've always been tutored by Syria. That was true before. It's probably going to, you know, it was true right up to the current civil war. So the leader of this, Abdullah Ojalan, is actually now in a Turkish jail and in one of the oddest things of modern politics is negotiating on a regular basis with the Erdogan government in Turkey about the future of the Kurds in Turkey. He's in jail and he's still treated kind of like a diplomat because he's that important. He founded the PKK and led them and for a long time uh, Syria allowed training by these fellows and they were in fairly near the Turkish border and trained freely there and everyone knew about it and the Turks repeatedly used the, the diplomatic tools and it didn't work and finally they took a whole bunch of troops and moved them close to the border. Damascus got the message and Hafez al-Assad ejected Abdullah Ojalan. Um, that was a case of rendition by the way. 
he went around the world. No one would host him. He ends up in Kenya, where he's rendered from there and is now in Turkish jail. Section 5, Pakistan. The current case, again, sort of like North Korea, Syria, or Iran. Pakistan's complicated, though, very. You know why. Uh, an old friend and also a troublesome friend, right, for Washington. Extremely complex case. They do a lot for us in many ways. They've uh, killed a lot of al-Qaeda or arrested them. They've been a good ally in many ways. They've also driven us nuts sometimes about Taliban and al-Qaeda. So they, they have a mixed record. Um, one way to think about this is that uh, Actually, there's a fellow right here at your law school named John Murphy. Uh, he did a book in 1989 called State Sponsors of Terrorism, and he has a list of sort of 12 or 13 categories of ways that a capital can help a sub-state actor. Uh, if you were to look at these, and, uh, and I won't today, uh, you could go through them and find in almost all those categories a certain amount of support by the capital or tolerance by the capital for terror groups. So there's rhetorical support, uh, there's tacit report, uh, John Murphy certainly talks about financial support, uh, there is permitting the use of territory, so you remember that came up when they found where bin Laden was. Um, Taliban is not only uh, openly ensconced in Pakistan, it's a subject of many, many diplomatic objections. Uh, they often just stay in Quetta as individuals. Provision of transportation, training to terrorists. There are unfortunately quite a few cases. Um, direct planning guidance is one of the categories. You remember in the Mumbai case of November 2008, one of the killers was actually on a sat phone or a cell phone talking directly to his handler in the intelligence service of Pakistan during the operation, talking about who they were killing. Well, the effects on this on India are dramatic and rather obvious. The interesting thing here is that it's clearly a case of state sponsorship of terrorism, and the question really is what to do about it. India, so far as I know, has done very little. But then the United States has also done very little. Dr. Rood used to teach us that that's, in fact, the kind of effect that usually is comes with, with heavy terrorism. The, the lethality involved in these attacks and the shock effects basically leave the victim a bit immobile, right? If not paralyzed, unwilling to act, maybe ready to appease. So the fact that nobody's really done anything about this so far isn't, would, not, would not shock someone like, uh, like Dr. Rood. Uh, on the one hand, we haven't even listed them as a state sponsor and I've already indicated why that would be hard to do. Uh, but we might one day. Uh, Pakistan's trying to sort of, as the old storytellers would say, ride the tiger. You know, can they, can they fund and help this kind of group and not have it turn upon them and eat them? That's the question. And they've been hoping so far that they can get away with this, but there's some problems with that. One is it's bad for the world community, and others it's bad for Pakistan. They have a domestic terrorism problem, which is enormous. Hundreds of people a year die from terrorism, and that's the first thing they say if we criticize their practice. Don't you see how many of us are dying? Don't you know how many of our army people die in Waziristan and other places? And it's truly uh, an answer, and it's a forceful answer. It's not entirely a good one. 
because they're funding the kinds of zealots that, that blow up things, sometimes in Pakistan, not always abroad. The neighbor, the victim, India, knows a lot about riding the tiger. India spent some years, because of all the Tamils in its own state of Tamil Nadu, India spent a lot of time helping Tamils across the Polk Straits in Sri Lanka. A whole series of groups. Gradually, the Tamil Tigers, the LTTE, become the most powerful. So much so that India later has a peacekeeping force that comes across south and tries to create peace very much against the interests of Sri Lankans uh, because of a group they helped create. Their attempt to ride the tiger didn't work out at all. They were burned in many ways. They withdrew their peacekeeping force. They've lost a former prime minister. So sponsorship of terrorism is probably not too good an idea. Couple conclusions, the, the, end, of, the end of this, part, part six. For Dr. Sheehan and I, as we sat out there taking notes and all, um, one of the strongest pieces of advice we really got from Dr. Rood was that while we like to think of the world as sort of separated in peace and war zones, and there's a lot of good reasons in morals and law and political science for thinking that way, the world doesn't cooperate very much, that very often there isn't really peacetime. If you think about the post-war world, as you use that phrase, in Dr. Rood's classes, you began to question just exactly what that meant. Terrorists seem to operate well in this gray area between war and peace. They don't seem to recognize uh, the, the state of peace. Uh, and they present us with lots of challenges. Sometimes it's uh, destabilizing. Sometimes it seems to promote anarchy. If you want to look at uh, uh, you know, Italy in the 70s, you're looking at a state that, that we feared could have disintegrated into anarchistic states. Other times these terror groups look more serious organized than that. We wonder if they can't be an adjunct to state power. So a question, uh, a question might be if we were in the 1980s in Europe and we were looking at the patterns of French Action Direct, the German Red Army Faction, the Irish Republican Army, or something, we ask ourselves, what would they be doing differently if it was a pre-war moment? Like, if, 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 they, if they weren't, what would they be doing right now that's any different than their practices now if they expected general war and were going to take part? So we see terrorists doing things like blowing up NATO fuel dumps, trying to kill Al Haig, which they almost did, who was our NATO commander over there. Uh, reconnaissance of bridges and that sort of thing. Uh, killing people involved in the Star Wars program when the scientists were based in Europe, a string of murders of Star Wars people. They were in effect doing, for their own ideas I'm sure, much like what the Soviets would want them to do if it was a pre-war period. So there are a lot of reasons why terrorism has to be watched closely. And I think it's partly true that Dr. Rood would counsel we should never think that the so-called state, the capital, is a kind of puppet master and that the other actor is really only doing anything at the behest of, you name it, Moscow, New Delhi, Islamabad, uh, you, you, you call it. Um, it seems to me that very often the relationship when matured includes the interests of the sub-state actor, very much so. And that's one reason they're so easily formed, these relationships, and why they can be dangerous. So if we think about, say, Hezbollah today, 
It's astonishing how much money Iran's dumped into that organization. Uh, and it's astonishing how much goodwill they get in Hezbollah ranks and how much they can influence Lebanon in that way. But I suspect that Hezbollah's politicians and Hezbollah's followers are also rather pleased by the relationship with Iran. It probably gives them many, many things. So we shouldn't bog down either in the conception of how much the states control these groups. It's interesting. It's going to vary with each group, but it's not necessarily the most significant question. So terrorists like, say, the Bader Meinhof group, which is the same as the Red Army faction, as far as I can see, there's a lot of evidence, were never directed in their targeting, say, by some Soviet intelligence agent, right? Oh, they met with them all the time. Uh, a guy named Vladimir Putin was a KGB agent based in Dresden. He used to see the Red Army faction in those days. They met with them all the time, but they didn't need to and didn't necessarily have to direct their actions or control their actions or pay for all their operations. Dr. Rood told me one day when I told him some stuff about some Soviet bloc support to some terrorists, he said, ah, but the real relationship will have matured when those terrorists are self-supporting. So that's why they do their bank robberies in Ireland and made, made a lot of money that way. And that's why FARC is in the dope business and so forth. They don't want to depend necessarily on, other, on, on others. So I think that there's a, a lot of play in both sides of, of the relationship. Um, I do think it's, uh, it, it's uh, uh, useful uh, to uh, consider finally the effect this all has and what it says about terrorism. The dimension of state support seems to me to be one more uh, reason why we want to emphasize, I want to emphasize, that a lot of times terrorism is successful. By that I mean, um, tactically it's very often successful, right? At, at a kind of operational level, as a military gal or guy would think about it, it, it's often pretty successful. At the strategic level, sometimes it succeeds. I mean, uh, they either change another state's policy or they become a state themselves. Um, I don't say this readily. A great teacher in this field, Walter LaCour, spent a lot of time arguing that terrorism all, uh, often fails or usually fails. There's a very bad little book that came out in 2002 that says flat out, terrorism always fails, never succeeds. I think that's wrong. And I guess one point too is that the gunmen don't seem to agree. We've had this now as a central part of international relations for about 40 years or so, and the gunmen still seem to think there's some play in the business of terrorism. It continues to be attractive as a strategy, and so I think we can expect more in the future. Dr. Rood said, and this is a quotation from a new monograph that's going to come out, I hope, next year on his thought by Patrick Garrity and J.D. Crouch, who was here last year, politics is not a soft art because important things transpire in politics. In politics, if it's possible and fruitful, it's likely to be tried. So terrorism really does confront us with a kind of uh, brutality, but it's a calculated brutality. They think it's going to have effect, and I would argue that very often it does.